Over its uh, 90 years, the ABC has launched any number of legendary personalities, but none more Big Elish than the marvellous Margaret Throsby. You know, from the moment Margaret switched on the mic in 1967, well, it was love at first broadcast, she went on to have a very varied career, most of it at the ABC, traversing radio and television and covering everything from breaking news to jazz. And when she uh, decided to hang up the headphones for the last time recently, there was a tsunami of tributes that flooded in from across the nation. I'd like to think of this program as one of those tributes. It's great to welcome you, Margaret, to the Little Wireless Program. To the Little Wireless Program. I sound like I've died from that introduction. <laughs> I trust that's not the case. <laughs> the, no, they used to the, Late Night Live used to think it had a curse on it because many of our most distinguished guests died within a fortnight. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> that will not be the case here. Now, let's both cheer up. I'm going to follow your example, the tradition you've pursued for, well, many years. As you've done thousands of times, I want to kick off this chat by talking about one of your favourite pieces of music. Tell me about Johann Sebastian Bach's Cello Suite Number 4 and what it means to you. Well, I went to the Great Hall of Sydney University many years ago and sat and listened in rapture to Peter Vispelvey playing all the suites. It took a long time. They're quite long works of music. And the reason that they resonate so much with me is that they were the soundtrack of my childhood. Um, and when I was listening to my mother, who was a cellist in the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, practising, which she did in the kitchen um, while the roast was in the oven and it was out of bounds, we weren't allowed to go in. I mean, it was, it was quite, it was quite, well, she was very strict about that, but I don't remember it being onerous that we couldn't go in. The door was shut. And you'd hear that sort of thing being played. And she practised and practised and practised and practised because she finally secured a full-time job in the Sydney Symphony. And it was like the biggest day of our lives when she got that job. It was because she was one of only two women in the orchestra. And at that time, it was the mid-1950s. And David, my brother, and I and my our older sister, Adrian, used to run around the place and do our own thing and run over the road to the neighbours and do all of that while that was playing. So it's sort of embedded in my in my consciousness. That sort those bark sweets particularly. They sound like exercises, but they're they're not exercises. They're works of exquisite beauty. Your dad was a barrister. He dies when you were twelve, so your mum becomes a single mum. She becomes a single mum and she becomes a working mum in an era when working mums were extremely unusual. It was necessity, but it was also, I mean, she'd been working throughout my father's life as well. During the war, she deputised in the orchestra because all the men had gone overseas to fight the war. And so there were openings then. And she also played in the Elizabethan theatre um, when the, the opera, the 
forerunner of the of opera Australia um, and the ballet. So she was in those bands in the pit, um, and she loved it. I mean, she she it was her life. I think having children was the other part of her life, but I think music was numero uno for her, and we were perfectly happy about that. I'm going to ask you a very personal question now. I suspect your mother leaned to the left a little. Um, like a ship in high sail, yes, she did. And I think what I know of my father, I think he probably did too. But my mother was certainly left-leaning. She was a what my brother describes as a free spirit. But she, <laughs> we, we, I remember saying to her once, who are you voting for, Mum? I mean, we used to tease her, you know, who are you voting for, Mum? And she'd say, I, it's a private ballot. It's a private. She'd get up on her toes. It's a private. Then she'd go go and hand out how to vote Labor cards, you see. So she <laughs> she, she kind of wore it on her sleeve. Yes, she was left-leaning. She was um, pretty political, I think, in her day. She was, she was very supportive of refugees from Europe, who arrived here after the war or during and after the war. There were lots of them in the orchestra, of course, so she she met a lot of them and was terrifically supportive in practical ways. Um, so I remember her taking parcels of goodies out to internment camps. You know, she was that sort of person. So your mother set an example of independence for which you must be very grateful. I am. She also set a, a an example of women in the workforce, it, it was sort of no, not, not questioned. And she also set an example of women, because there were two of us and then David, our brother, in the between. There was no dis- distinguishing between the boy and the girls in terms of opportunity. We didn't have any money. We were really not, um, not only not well off, we were really quite not well off. But education was very important to her. There was absolutely an expectation that we'd uh, go through to the end of school and go to university, uh, whereas some of my friends, some of my very close friends, a couple of them, I went to a selective high school, North Sydney Girls, which has retained a very fine reputation academically. And a couple of my friends who went on from primary school at the same time as I did had parents who said they needed to leave at the end of year, whatever it is, year eight, no, year 10, uh, in our day it was, the, it was third year high school, and go and work in a bank or, you know, do something that prepared them for marriage and staying at home. That was the expectation, and you'll remember it well enough in the 1950s. So when the, when the women's movement started to burst into life at the end of the 60s, I can remember sort of feeling on first blush it didn't have much relevance for me because I hadn't had any, I mean, talk about being self-centred, but it hadn't meant anything to me because I, I didn't have to fight for equal opportunity. It was only after the thing had got going for a bit that I realised, by God, there's a lot of a lot of women for whom this is very relevant. And so I started joining the protests as well. You know, so it was it was very much of the time. My guest is Margaret Throsby, who uh, turned 81 just a couple of days ago, so a belated happy birthday. Thanks for telling everybody that. <laughs> well, I, as an 83-year-old, I feel uh, I'm at liberty to do so. <laughs> I also want to reveal in parenthesis that you learnt piano, but you didn't for some reason go on to be a concert pianist. 
I le- it's different between being taught piano and learning piano. I was an unwilling participant in piano lessons and I had a, a very strict piano teacher that my mother found somewhere. And again, that was important to her that the, that the education of the uh, what my mother perceived as a musical gift in me should be nurtured. So she found this quite expensive and I think my mum really had to dig deep to provide these lessons with a, I mean, she was a very fine pianist, but she was not the most gifted teacher and I was very resistant. I was very a very teenage resistant person, so the gift went unfinished. Well, the great pianos of the world are uh, the worse off for it, but remind me about your siblings because both went on to become leaders in their fields. They did, they did. My sister is a psychologist. Um, she's uh, She worked was an academic psychologist for many years at Sydney University and then Macquarie. And then she went into private industry and she's now and has been for quite a long time deeply embedded in Lifeline where she started off as a volunteer counsellor but has quickly sort of gone into the ranks of the of the administration and she's um, she's just indefatigable. She I, She's got extraordinary energy and my brother is a a very um he's not as not as uh, recognized in australia as he is abroad he's one of i think three in the world three distinguished cultural economists um he started off in economics but his focus quickly shifted to the arts and culture and that's where he is now working i don't know 12 hours a day <laughs> 7 days a week he's he's a He's an incredible worker, but he loves it. I mean, that's what his life is all about. And I think you know him. I think you've interviewed him probably. He's um, he's he's sort of rubbed shoulders with all the top economists in the world and he's been consulted. He was oh, no, consulted. He's, a, he's a megastar. There's yeah, no he was consulted by Paul Keating when he was Prime Minister, um, talking about arts policy and all of that. So David is, he's great. I mean, I, I think of him as a little kid in khaki shorts, but he really has had a very good career. You mentioned Paul Keating, and I must warn the listener that Paul will be joining us a little later. Now, given the your, um, shall we say, problematic relationship with the piano, did you see a job in media as something to aspire to? No, I went into the into media via advertising, as you did, so I worked for a period in the very early 1960s at J. Walter Thompson. Then I had a child and then stayed home for three years and then once I was beginning to look for work again when my son was three and a half and in preschool, I uh, it, it's a, a long and stupid story, but a friend of the family had suggested I look at the ABC as a possible employer. I went and spoke to John Appleton, who was then head of children's department, thinking that I think because I had a child, I thought I might be able to work in the kids' department. Um, he said, why don't you do an announcing audition? Well, you know, that was a, 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 bit, a bit of a waste of time in many ways because women were routinely um, failed. Look, we, I'm sorry to interrupt. At that point, there were no female announcers. There were no female announcers and hadn't been for 20 years or so. Uh, as I often say, women ran the ABC during the war because all the men were away, as they were in the orchestra. And um, so I, I, there, there had been a dearth of announcers, and I think the, the distinction has to be understood that 
people whose voices you heard, you wouldn't have got a job as an announcer probably, Philip, because, well, you might have, I don't know, but you have to pass a fairly stiff audition and, you know, they listen to your voice and the quality of the voice and how you pronounce foreign names and things. And they routinely failed women because it was policy not to have women on air because we all know that women's voices don't carry the authority of men. That was said to me many, many times. I, I applied twice, failed the first time, and miraculously and by dint of great good fortune and, and coincidence was given a three-month probation. I think the ABC was getting ready at, in 1967 to, to sort of ease up on no females on air and they gave me a three-month probation and, I mean, it was very restricted what I was allowed to do, but that well, was... Well, uh, okay, now let's hold that thought because I find it fascinating the limits that were imposed upon you. Yes, I was told straight up it was like, you know, you've got the job but here's the punishment. You're not allowed to do... You're not allowed to read the news. Never, never, never will you read the news. You're not allowed to cover Parliament, which we did all the time then, um, and I know we still do, but we didn't have a dedicated network in those days. Um, you're not allowed to do sport. You're not allowed to do... And I, I remember saying, well, actually, what am I able to do? And they said, well, royal tours. There's a royal tour coming up <laughs> and we want you to be there to discuss what the Queen's wearing. And so that's kind of how I started with it. But I just kept kicking at the door. I, I can remember being so frustrated by it and so... Oh, bugger this, you know, why do they say that? And it just was, again, absolute coincidence and happenstance that one day a newsreader, and it was, I remember who it was, it was Eric Child, the great jazz broadcaster, who was also a very good newsreader. He didn't turn up one day for the for the nighttime news um, shift. And the newsroom, which was down in William Street, called Upper Forbes Street and said, quick, 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 where's the newsreader? And I was standing in the middle of the office and the supervisor and I were the only two in the office and he said, well, he must be held up. We haven't got anybody. And I said, I'll go, I'll go. And so the, this supervisor said, well, Margaret's here. And the guy, they, old Bert Christie, this wonderful sub-editor who people who've got a long memory of ABC people will remember. He was just such a good, good guy. He said, send her down. So I trotted off down Forbes Street and across William Street and up the steps. <laughs> And, and Bert Christie shoved the papers of the news in my hands and said, get in there and read. And I did, and it was great. When you first went on air, the Sydney Morning Herald had a headline, Auntie Gets a Mini Skirt. And after you read the news, there was the uh, a similar response. It was big news. Here is the news read by a woman. On the front page. It was scandalous. It was really scandalous. But... Interestingly, as soon as, well, it didn't happen then, but several years later I read television news in 1978 and that was a first and that was really, really, really big news because you and I know that when the public um, and when politicians talk about the ABC, they mean television. They don't think of radio. Um, and when I read TV news, there was this huge sort of fuss and within... I reckon within a few months, Katrina Lee was reading news on Channel 10. It was as if the, the, all the commercials were just waiting for the ABC to take the lead. And to, their, to the enormous credit of the ABC, they took a punt. 
So it was very lucky for me that I was there. The genie was out of the bottle, but we should make the point that uh, networks saved money by employing women because they didn't get paid the same as blokes. They didn't get paid the same as blokes for a long, long, long time. I, you know, when I came back to work after having my daughter in 1978, and by the way, when I read that first TV news bulletin, it was about a week after I learned that I was pregnant. Uh, and so I spent the whole, the next nine months reading news, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and I took a f- several years off again to be with my baby. And when I was ready to come back, the the whole landscape had changed. The, it was amazing how it had changed just in, in the three or four years that I was I was home. Now, I mentioned that you went on to have a number of different careers within the ABC, but I'd forgotten that you also did a bit of work outside. Tell us what some of the other jobs were. Well, um, from the sublime to the ridiculous, uh, SBS started a program called Issues. It was Issues 84 or 82, I can't remember, Issues 84 and Issues 85, um, produced by the wonderful late, he died recently, Brian Davies. Um, and it was a program, the format of which was, it was a, I was hosting a panel of, I think, four. I remember Mungo McCallum was a very frequent um, panellist. Gough Whitlam once was <laughs> sort of commandeered the whole thing. And we discussed political issues of the day, uh, or they discussed political issues of the day, and I hosted that for a couple of years. But from the sublime that was to the ridiculous, um, but still extremely valuable experience was working at Channel 10 on Beauty and the Beast. when John Now, Wall that's was... something I didn't remember oh, at all. Oh, Philip, it was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Who was the beast during your era? Well, John Laws was the beast for quite a while and then Clive Robertson. Well, no one's beastlier than John Laws, but Clive must have been a delight. He was he was very funny, of course. I mean, he this was before I think it was before he then went to read late night news on Channel 7, which is renowned for having been a very anarchic sort of set because if he didn't like the news he was reading, he'd just toss it away and say, let's get to the next story. So uh, he was the night. And and Brian Davies, interestingly, produced that as well. So Brian, I had... He produced both those those shows. But Clive was, I mean, he was good. He was a good, good beast. I have a memory of hearing you through my headphones on Qantas flights. Oh, yeah. 25 years I did that. Explain to the listeners who are unable to fly at the moment. Who are unable to fly at the moment. When Qantas brought the jumbo jet in, in, I think, 1970, early 70s, 72 or something like that, that meant that they needed audio programs to entertain passengers on long-haul flights. And so uh, a, a couple of people that I know in the industry set up a company making um, audio programs and they asked me to present various programs over the years. There was for a while a music program, then there was a classical music program, then there was an interview program. But for 25 years I did that and um, and really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed doing that and I got a lot of funny mail from people. One man wrote to me and said he slept with me all the way over the Pacific, which I thought was pretty nice. 
This is a little wireless program called Only Now on RN and I'm speaking to the living legend, Margaret <laughs> Thosby, about not her... not for long, not for long, not according for long, to you. but either of us <laughs> could drop off the twig at any second. <laughs> We're talking to Margaret about her 55 years behind the mic. Now, let's do a segue to the long-form interviews, which you pioneered. Well, I don't know that I pioneered the long-form interview, but I think I pioneered the format that we devised, which was so much of this is all accidental, Philip. It's really not by design as much as by accident. In 1992, I think, um, I had been absent from the ABC for nine months while the ABC pulled itself together after they sacked me for doing an ad for the Macquarie Bank. And uh, Norman Swan was running um, Radio National at the time. He's the bloke that brought me here, bless his heart. Bless his heart. He's a good friend of mine and I love him dearly. He asked me if I'd come and uh, back to the ABC to RN and present Life Matters while Geraldine Doog took maternity leave, which I did for, I think, six months between the end of, I think it was 1993 and the beginning of 1994. And... In the beginning of 1994, Peter Loxton, who was head of radio in those days, um, seconded a man by the name of Peter James from the BBC to come and revamp ABC Classic FM, which in those days was called, I can't remember what it is, it's gone through so many name changes, but it was relaunched and uh, he asked me to come on board and present the morning show. And I remember saying to him, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I mean, I know a lot about, a fair bit about classical music, but I come from a talk broadcast background. So I'm, you know, I think I'll be bored rigid by play, just presenting music all the time. And he said, well, let's get some talk into it. I said, let's do an interview for an hour. He said, yes, but the listeners won't like it if it's all talk. We'll have to have music in it. And between us, we just said, well, why don't we make the guest or ask the guest to choose the music? And so was born this format, which has been picked up by many programs since. It was effectively a grand-sized version of Desert Island Discs. Yes, I was very chary about being compared with Desert Island Discs because I listened to Desert Island Discs a lot when I was in England. And that was a different, totally different experience because they played one-minute segments of music and it was quite abrupt and it was, you know, here we go, this is it, and then you hear a little bit of music and then now we talk. Ours was far more conversational and we and for a long while we had only played allowed guests to choose classical music. And then as listeners got to like the format, we then began to allow I remember David Williamson being on the program saying, I can't just choose classical music. I like jazz and I like and so we started to free it up. And by the time I finished that program, guests could choose whatever they like, as you probably remember. Well, I remember being wanting to conceal, wanting to camouflage rather than reveal. And I think I was very cautious in my, in my, in my selections. But did you find that music allowed you to unlock parts of people and their stories that uh, perhaps yes. they hadn't it- heard before? It seems it seems like a sort of a, a foregone conclusion that that's going to happen, but it seemed it was a revelation to me that particularly people who had been interviewed many times over their careers, you know, famous people, famous authors, whatever, who've done a thousand interviews, um, get asked the same questions all the time. But when they're asked to reveal the music that they like, 
sometimes unconsciously they reveal a lot about themselves. But well, then... I'm, go- I'm going to dramatise that point by an excerpt from an extraordinary chat you had with John Cleese. Ah. Where, in fact, he breaks into tears. Made you cry. Mm. Why, do you think? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. It somehow uh, cuts through all the, if I may say so, crap of everyday life and goes to something that's so deep inside us. It's almost to our essence, and it's almost as though there's a, a promise of something better. Mm. That's what I get from it. Music of, can do that, can't it? Yes, it can. It's, I don't think it, I don't think anyone else can do that. I'm sure that ballet fans would would, would disagree with me, but I just there's a thing that music can do. And the extraordinary thing is how little of modern music I really enjoy. I sometimes hear a song. I thought the Beatles were great, ha ha ha, forty, fifty years ago. But when I hear rock music, it just doesn't affect me emotionally mm. that insistent beat uh, I can understand it can be exciting and it can be fun to dance to but it doesn't touch me emotionally and I think the, 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 the definition of great art for me isn't a verbal one it's, it's does it really touch something in you that you can't quite explain mm. and I've, ha- I've had it from paintings I saw uh, Vermeer's view of Delft once in uh, in Rotterdam, and I almost melted. You know what I mean? That my legs almost gave way because it was so beautiful. And then I saw it four or six, five months later at the Royal Academy in London, and it hardly had any effect on me. It's funny, it's, isn't it? How yeah, it happens? It can happen, yeah. and it's it's all to, it's all to do with what mood, how open you are. And I think yeah. what that that kind of music does to me is it 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 opens me up, and 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 it touches something that's deeper in me. That was the Easter hymn, was it not? It was that was the Easter hymn from Cavalleria Rusticana, and it was such an amazing moment in the studio because I put the music on and we sat back and listened to it. And then I looked up and his eyes were filled with tears and they started rolling down his cheeks. And I thought, how amazing is that? I have to say that when guests cried, and a lot of guests cried, I remember Joan Rivers sobbing, actually, um, I always thought, this is great radio. You know, it's very, very um, naughty of me, actually, but I never wanted to stop people from crying. I never tried to say, you know, I I never wanted to sort of see them pull themselves together, and it happened a lot. We'll come back to tears in the studios, but I'm reminded of what's called the Stendhal Syndrome, of which uh, my old friend Barry Jones suffers. And Barry can be reduced to tears by a poem, by a a piece of music, even by a painting. But as you say, not an uncommon occurrence for a guest to end up in tears in your company. Mm. In fact, I understand you worked hard to create a a certain ambiance with soft lighting, pot of herbal tea and a box of tissues. Yeah, and that was deliberate because we found that people, see, you say to people, choose five pieces of music that are important to you and almost automatically people will think, oh, you know, I'll play such and such that we played at mum's funeral or I'll play such and such that was very important in a love affair I had when I was 21. So when, and they don't think about it much, you know, and so they put it on the list and when they get there and they're in the studio 
and they listen to it, it brings them to pieces. So that is aided by being in a in a friendly environment. I mean, if you're under strip lights and it's cold and you're a long way from <laughs> the the guest, you know, from the from the interviewer. So I I engineered it so that I was quite close. Well, and sometimes if, you were too close in the sense that uh, you held hands with Derek Jacoby. I I held hands with him because. When he arrived, to our astonishment, he was very, very nervous. And I, because I, I thought, oh, you know, it'll be a piece of cake. He's been interviewed a thousand times. Not so. He was really nervous. And when he got into the studio, he was even more nervous. He said, I'm shaking. And I said, would it help if I, if we, if I held your hand for a bit? Well, we ended up holding hands for the, we were close enough to do that, to hold hands for the whole interview. He grabbed my hand. But we, he, did, he did get comfortable. I mean, it, I don't want to be cruel to people. It's, isn't it extraordinary that one of the most famous British actors can get that sort of stage fright? Yeah, yeah, because it, it was out of his comfort zone. If, on a stage, I think, in a costume, he's much more comfortable than in a, in a radio studio talking to a stranger about personal things. I'm glad you uh, had that encounter with him. He's always annoyed me because he's a, a Shakespeare denialist. He doesn't believe that, uh, that William wrote the plays. Now, what are some of the other interviews you've done that stand out as being particularly memorable? Well... 25 years or 24 years or whatever it was means thousands of interviews and there were literally thousands of interviews. Um, there were so many that I, I mean, the John Clare, the people that I liked interviewing um, besides everybody else were well-known people who had been interviewed a lot of times and the challenge was finding some aspect of them that people didn't know. So having John Cleese cry or something like that. Uh, was was wonderful, I thought. Well, um, let, let, can I give you a bit of a prompt because I know one of your favourites was also a favourite of mine in Oliver Sacks. Ah, oh, Oliver Sacks, what a man. Now, oh, I just get breathless when I think about the humanity, the humanity of that man. When you look at today's world and you think of the strife we're all in and you get a human being who is so naturally compassionate you know to be a patient of his would have been a great gift for people suffering all kinds of dreadful things and you had every chance of finishing up as one of his case studies in those masterpiece books of his that's right and the amazing thing was that he didn't acknowledge or address the fact that he was gay until much later in life and then he met this man and became they became partners and oh i just felt so i felt get sort of tingles thinking about how all of us and and he was one of those interviewees who gives great thought to the questions being asked he doesn't rattle off things you know and i lo- i do like that a lot it's pretty rare margaret isn't it because let's face it most of the people we talk to are at least semi professional And they've got an act, they've got a performance. And I, like you, love those that wait. And you're almost frightened, but they're thinking and then Mm. they speak. Mm. And the other element of that is that not all the people that I interviewed were well known at all. They were, you know, there were complete unknowns, many of them, who just had a good story to tell. Um, And 
and and coaxing stories out of people who are nervous is sometimes difficult. But that's what that's why I set up the studio the way I did to sort of offer a place of of that they're not going to get attacked. They're not going to be confronted with questions that are embarrassing or unpleasant or whatever. Not that I skirted around difficult stuff, but there are ways of asking difficult questions and there are other ways, you know. I've got a, a long list of, uh, of people who I haven't been able to lure into the studio. Who do you regret not interviewing? Oh, gosh. Billy Connolly probably stands at the top of the list um, because I just sort of missed out every time and I really would have loved to have interviewed him because not just because he had me on the floor laughing when he was in his, you know, prime, but because I'd heard and seen a lot of interviews with him over the years and in each one he 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 gives thought to the answers. You know, he's... he's he pays great respect to interviewers um, by thinking about his answers and not trotting out the same stories all the time. But he's also this most extraordinarily gifted comedian. I just thought Billy Connolly was one of those rare beasts and I would have loved to have interviewed him. It never came to be, though. Enter stage left, or perhaps centre left, uh, a, a mutual friend of ours in Paul Keating. Here he is talking to you in 2011 about, of all things, the connection between music and politics. Where, where passion and reason vie with one another, the outcome is invariably deeper. Um, and uh, people would be surprised to think that the reformation of the Australian economy came off the back of Bruckner and Mahler and Shostakovich and Elgar and the rest, but, but in fact it did. Um, because uh, you can um, you can live on the briefing notes, you can absorb the policy, you can be part of the cabinet yarn, but if you are not infused with the what I think is the search for beauty, the search for um, the other world, uh, then your things become ordinary. You know, the other thing about music is. If you listen to it, I don't mean incidentally while you're washing up, but if you listen to music, it 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 gets things running in your mind, creative things running in your mind, you know. And I would always have a pad out, writing stuff down as I as I got into the big works, you know, if I if, if I really got going on on things. So for me, um, this whole sort of crossover between creativity, passion, and reason, mm. you know. Um, lets you do bigger works, obliges you. you. You think to yourself, I must do better. I must do better here. Absolutely marvellous, Margaret. And mm. uh, you and I share a deep affection for the ABC. As someone who's been around even longer than I have, what role do you think it plays? Apart from being the most important media company in the world, in the country, do you mean? Yes. I think the fact, I mean, we, I still say we, isn't it terrible because I have retired, but I think of we, I still think that I'm part of the organisation. The ABC is very um, keen on its reputation as being the most trusted media organisation in the country. It's no mean feat to achieve that. 
although it has to be said, I think we're in Australia extremely poorly represented by the media, not the ABC. I think that the ABC is fine, but the rest of the media, I think, is a bit of a basket case in many ways. But I think that the fact that the ABC stands in such high, well, is given such high regard by its audience, people are devoted to the ABC. People, you know, people love the organisation and I think it's probably one of the most important institutions in the country. Absolutely agree. Now, you've had a hand in establishing a mentoring program. Yes. When um, Michelle Guthrie was the MD, um, that it happened during her stint as MD, I was um, uh, informally mentoring several people who approached me quite high-profile people who approached me with various broadcasting sort of issues and career issues. People I knew, some of them I didn't know particularly well but got to know, who I'd go and have coffee with and we'd, and they just, you know, I think they just thought somebody who'd been in the organisation a long time might be able to offer some help. And that translated into my feeling sort of, discontented that the ABC didn't have some kind of formal mentoring program because I knew there were lots of people on the staff who could offer really good assistance to people just by opening their ears and sitting down having a coffee, maybe offering some guidance of some kind. So I went and I was lamenting the fact that there was no such formal process in the ABC to a colleague and she said, and she knew the lie of the land a bit, um, better than I did. She said, listen, Michelle Guthrie's door is always open. I said, oh, God, I wouldn't do that. And she said, go and just ask her to, for a meeting, see what you can do. Now, I thought nothing ventured, nothing gained. I called, made an appointment, went up to the whatever floor the in that rarefied atmosphere up there and sat down with Michelle and said, the ABC really needs to take a, an initiative on this. We're a bit behind the times. We should have a mentoring program formally in place. And today we do. So... I'm, I'm that's, you know, when you ask me what I've achieved in my life, I think that's one of the big ones. A koala stamp for you, Margaret, on that. Thank for, you. <laughs> for, for that alone. I was never on such good terms with Michelle Guthrie. Now, you hand, you hang up the, the headphones, you push the microphone away. Why? I think there's a time to go. I think that particularly in our game, there comes a time when you reach a, a stage where you feel okay, you know, not that I haven't got more to achieve in life as a broadcaster, but that the time, the time, I just felt the time was right. I think turning 80 last year really made a difference to me. And I thought, and having moved out of Sydney, which I know you don't live in Sydney, and I now don't live in Sydney. I moved during lockdown down the south coast and that sort of disconnection, physical disconnection from, from the ABC, even though it was a wrench when I finally made the decision and I finally thought, yeah, it's, it is time. And all my friends and family were extremely supportive because it hasn't been easy. Elements of it have been very difficult. It's like walking out on the family in a way, but it's the right thing to do. But you've got such a family to support and to love, haven't you? I mean, you, you love being a grandma. 
I love being a grandma. I have two, the two of the most extraordinary granddaughters anybody could have, and they bring me daily joy. They 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 really do because I live quite near them now, and so I can see them. You know, and whereas when I was in Sydney, I was driving every week to visit and stay the night and then go back the next day. I got pretty bored with that drive, so it just seemed to be right. So a whole lot of changes all at once. I moved house after living in Sydney 80 years and then I left the ABC. Margaret, it's been a pleasure. The velvet voice of Margaret Throsby, ABC broadcaster extraordinaire, and we'll have a link to all the great tributes to Margaret on our website. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.